0: If you have your Bibles open to John chapter 9, we're going to look at this remarkable passage uh, Let's see what we can learn about our Lord Jesus and about ourselves. Let's uh, Let's pray. Lord, for those of us who are believers, who've read your word, we we know this story. It's not new to us, and yet, sometimes when we are this familiar, we can miss the wonder of, of what is done, and what is said, and what is revealed about you, and what is revealed about others and ourselves. Lord, I ask for your spirit to fill us and fill this place and do whatever work we as individuals need to have done in our hearts and our minds, that we would give glory and praise and bow the knee to the Son of Man. I pray for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. So there was a book out some years ago called... Why do bad things happen to good people? Familiar with that book? Anybody? Anybody read that book? Why do bad? Why do uh, bad things happen to good people? It's not a great book. You shouldn't read it. At least the one that I'm thinking of. I think it was written by a, ra- a Jewish rabbi, if I recall correctly. But whether you've read that book or not, and even if people haven't phrased it in exactly that way, someone has no doubt asked you a question similar, or you have raise the question in your own mind. Uh, why, do, why do things happen like this? The, uh, the best answer that I've ever heard was by a theologian named Dr. R.C. Sproul. Many of you know that name. Uh, he was asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And he said, that only happened once, and he volunteered. <laughs> that is the, the The right and standard theological answer to the question. See, the assumption to the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is that there are good people. Why would God do anything bad? Why would God allow anything bad to happen to good people? The assumption is, well, there aren't any good people. So we have no right to say to God, what you're doing is unfair because we're sinners. And as sinners, any good thing that happens to us is God's grace and mercy. The fact that we did not wake up today in hell is evidence of God's grace and mercy, right? You see that. And so we need to cut that question off at the, at the front and say there are no good people. So bad things happening to bad people, there's nothing unfair or unjust about that. That's a good answer. As far as it goes theologically, it's the right answer. But what we're gonna see in our passage today, that is not how Jesus handles this scenario with this man who is born blind. He he takes it a different way. And we're gonna look at that. So the, uh, the story, the scenario is, Jesus is passing by, he's, he's been having this long encounter with the Pharisees, and he passes by, and he sees a blind man, a man who was blind from birth. Now, we're not told how they knew he was blind from birth. People knew of this guy, and maybe there's other conversation going on, but he, he knows this guy is blind from birth, and the disciples know it too, and his disciples ask him a question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Now last week, if you recall, we talked about a logical fallacy that the Pharisees committed. Do you remember when they said to Jesus, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? They were attacking the man. Logical fallacy. Instead of arguing about the argument, they're attacking the man. Well, here the disciples commit another logical fallacy. It's called the false dilemma, or the false dichotomy, or more popularly, the either-or fallacy. Do you see what they said here? This man was born blind. There are only two possible explanations for that. Either his parents sinned, and God punished the parents by giving them a a blind son, or This man himself sinned before he was born, and that's the reason he was born blind. Now, probably some of you think, how is this possible that a guy could sin before he was born? That God would punish him that way. It was actually a very common belief uh, among the Jews, and there were a couple of explanations for it. One was, if a woman who was pregnant went into a pagan temple... The Jews believe that both the woman and the unborn child sinned in that encounter. So that would be one explanation. The other is, if you think back to the uh, story of Jacob and Esau, and how they were both in their mother's womb, and they wrestled in there, and, and, and the Bible talks about uh, uh, what, what's going on inside the womb there, that they believe that actually these, uh, these unborn infants could actually do things willfully and could sin in the womb. And so it wasn't a shocking thing in that culture for someone to think that this child could have actually sinned before they were born. So they say, Jesus, we know it's one of these two. Either his mom, parents sinned, or the child sinned himself before he was born, and that's the reason he was born blind. And Jesus says, uh, there is at least another option that you don't know of. Look at the answer that he gives. It is neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, No, 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 brothers, no, 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 you don't understand. God has nothing to do with this. God has set the world in motion, and things happen, and there are rules of nature, laws of nature. There are things that go on, and, and you know, the world is corrupt. It's been tainted by sin, and sometimes bad things just happen. But God is up there, and he's watching, and he, he doesn't have control over these kinds of things. Jesus doesn't even say God allows these kinds of things. Christians say that. God allows difficult things in our lives, but the Bible doesn't actually use the word allow with anything God does. Jesus is not concerned here to protect God from someone saying, God, that's not fair what you did. His answer is, This man was born this way so that his works could be displayed. So the works of God could be displayed. See, the the apostles here are very much like Job's friends. Have you read Job lately? What we see in Job is this man, Job, who is just going about life, and it's a very good life, it's a very comfortable life. He's got a great family. He's got a big farm, wealthy, everything is wonderful, and then seemingly out of nowhere for Job, he loses all of it. He loses his wealth, his business, his family, except for his wife. And then he loses his health, and he gets a horrible disease, and he doesn't understand what's going on. And his good friends... Come to him and say, hey, Job, we know the story. You're clearly in sin. Bad things don't happen to good people. So if you would just start acting better, if you would get right with God, if you would confess your sin, then God would take away all these hard things and give you good things. They were committing the same fallacy as these disciples. What Job didn't understand at the time is there was a bigger story going on. Job is not the center of God's story. Job is not the reason why God is doing everything. What Job didn't know, but we know because we can read about it, is this whole thing happened because Satan is up in the throne room with God, and God says to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? see how faithful he is to me? And Satan says, well, of course, look how you give him everything he wants. And God says, well, even if we took that away, he would still be faithful to me. And Satan says, I don't think so. And God says, all right, you can go do whatever you want to to him, except you can't kill him. Job is not privy to any of this. He experiences the hard things because God has something bigger going on in his story. It's a very similar thing to what Jesus says. This man was born blind, not because his parents were sinners, not because he was a sinner, but so that the works of God might be displayed. There is a bigger story being told in the world than my story and your story. The universe does not exist for our benefit and for our sake. Our story is not preeminent. Jesus' story is preeminent. I know how the Lord has to teach us this lesson over and over and over again. I hear hear Christians using this kind of language, maybe you've used it as well. Have you heard Christians say, have you thought this when when things are going hard and they say, ah, I just wonder if I missed God's best. You you enter into a relationship, a marriage, and then it's not so happy all the time. Did I just miss God's best? Did God have something better for me and if I had waited a little longer, I would have found it? You know, the scripture doesn't ever talk like that. The scripture doesn't lay out this hope that if you just do everything right, life is going to be rosy. There's an old song, he never promised me a rose garden kind of thing. God didn't promise us the rose garden. In fact, what he promised us is affliction and hardship and difficulty. Another expression I've heard, anytime God closes a door, he opens a? Yeah, you know that, don't you? Have you ever used that phrase? Oh, God slammed that door shut. So I'm looking because whenever he closes a door, he opens a window. Is that what the Bible says? Can we find anything even remotely close to that in the Bible? No. What does that assume? Bad things shouldn't be happening to good people. And so if it looks like a bad thing, we need to look around because God's going to provide something better. Imagine somebody coming up to the Apostle Paul and saying, hey, Paul. Whenever God slams a door, look around. He's going to open a window. You know what Paul would have said? Yeah, I'm probably going to get thrown out of that window. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. Like, I go here and I get beaten up. And then I go there and I get beaten up. And I will go there and I get stoned. Not in the Colorado sense, but in the... And and, and I go there and I I get pummeled with... Everywhere I go, there's more tragedy waiting for me. Don't give me this nonsense, Paul would say that God's opening a window. What is presumed, what are we assuming when we think that? That God doesn't want hard things to be happening for us. Tragedy, chaos, sickness, conflict. We somehow think that something is amiss if that's going on in our life. But the scripture says over and over and over again, suffering is part of this life and God's plan for us. And here we have a man who was born completely devoid of the ability to see. Now, we don't know how old he was here, but he was of age, so he's at least 13. I'm guessing he was in late teens or early 20s, something along those lines, just how the interplay with his parents goes. My mom was born not completely blind, but partially blind. By the time I came along, she was legally blind. And she told me later in life, she couldn't see, she couldn't recognize my face. My mom never saw my face. I know some of you are going, that sounds like a blessing more than a curse, right? (laughs) Right? But imagine not being able to see your child's face. When I, when I would walk up, she had enough vision that she could kind of see the gate. And then, of course, as soon as she heard my voice speak, she knew it was me. But a mother is supposed to be able to see her child's face. But at least she could see something. At least she could see sunlight. And for a, at least a time in her life, she was able to, to read and, and, and to see, but, but her eyes deteriorated over her, over her time. This man came into this world and it was completely dark. He was a beggar. He'd be laying out begging for alms, for gifts, and he would hear people talking about maybe the, the wonder of the temple, This magnificent structure, he had no idea what it looked like. The beautiful sunrise this morning, people would talk about, he had no idea what it looked like. His family, his parents, never saw his parents. And the question is why? Why would a man be born? without the ability to see anything. Jesus does not skirt the issue. He does not shy away from the issue, and he certainly does not apologize for the answer. Jesus says, this man was born blind so that I could appear and heal him, so that I could show up and show the works of God not abstractly, not just do amazing things, but to prove I am the Messiah. He's been saying that over and over again, "I've come to do the works of my Father. My father takes some loaves and fishes and feeds people. I can do that. My father heals, I can heal. We're going to see in a couple chapters, My father raises the dead, I can raise the dead." Remember all the prophecies of the Old Testament. When the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like deer. And before that, the eyes of the blind will be opened. Jesus said, This man was born blind so that I could show up and prove to the world I am the Messiah. And I could give him sight. And he would see and he would rejoice, and everybody would be amazed. Us, there's some part of us that doesn't like that answer. It seems unfair for this man to live 20 years, give or take, blind, just so Jesus can display his power and glory. When we think like that, we're thinking our story is the big story, or that this man's story is the big story. It's not. Jesus is the big story. And we need to be thinking, how is Jesus glorified in all things, including the hard things, what we call the bad things? In this case, we know the answer. We don't always know the answers, but in this case, we are told. We have to work as long as it's day, because night is coming. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world, and I can give light to this man's eyes, and he can see. So then the story goes on. He actually heals him here, and he does it in a unique way, right? He, he bends down, and he spits in the dirt, and he, he forms this mud, clay stuff, and he puts it on the man's eyes, and he says, go wash in the pool. There's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus makes the clay and heals that way. Obviously, Jesus could have just said, let there be light in your eyes. Let, you know, be healed. He could have just said the words. And he did that often. Think about what we're going to see in chapter 11. Lazarus, come forth. He doesn't have to go and do anything to the body to make it come back alive. He just, he just says the word. So why does he choose to put clay on this man's eyes? Well, we're not told specifically. Uh, one view is that Jesus is sort of reenacting the original creation That his eyes were not fully formed from the dust, and that it's sort of a a Genesis chapter 2 scenario. He's taking more of the dust and putting on the man's eyes and and regenerating the man's eyes so that they work this time. Certainly possible. I think there's another more likely reason. What day is it that Jesus does this? It's a Sabbath day. That's not an accident. Jesus does a lot of what he does on the Sabbath day. Why? Because he knows the Pharisees are watching and that it will provoke them. Or to use our 21st century term, it will trigger them. He knows that's going to happen. Well, the Pharisees, we've already seen in other settings, they had some absurd rules for the Sabbath day. Remember we saw this one? They had a rule that you can't carry your, your pallet on the Sabbath day. You can't pick up your mat and walk. And remember, we talked about it. Who, who comes up with a rule like that? Why? Well, another rule they had was you can't heal on the Sabbath. Are any of you guilty of healing on the Sabbath? I mean, how many people in the history of mankind are guilty of healing on the Sabbath? You couldn't do it. You had the ability to heal, couldn't do it on the Sabbath. They also had a rule that you couldn't knead dough, work dough on the Sabbath. How does Jesus make this mud? He spits on the ground and then he kneads the mud. Here's what I think happened. I think he's down kneading the mud and he looks over and eye to eye with the Pharisees. Watch this. And probably used exactly the same gestures that you would use to knead bread. They had a third rule. They had 39, actually. They had a third rule. You cannot anoint someone's eyes on the Sabbath. I don't know. Don't ask me. I have no idea why. So here Jesus healing on the Sabbath. He's kneading mud on the Sabbath. And he anoints the man's eyes on Sabbath. The Sabbath. And then he says, Go wash while he quietly slips away to see what happens. So the man goes to the pool, he washes, and for the first time in his life, he opens his eyes and the sun is almost going to make him blind again. It's like, wait. There really is a big ball of fire in the sky. And he runs back to his family, to his friends. He says, I can see. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be blind for all those years? And now a guy puts some mud on your eyes and you can see? He comes running back to everyone. And they're, they're not sure. Some of the people are saying, there's no way. That guy, that guy we're talking about, he's blind. This can't be him. And others say, no, no, it's him. Some say, no, no, it's not him, but it's someone like him. So what do they do? They take him to the Pharisees, to the leaders, thinking the leaders are going to be wowed by this. These Pharisees are going to be overjoyed. Somebody just healed this guy. We need to let the religious leaders know. They're going to be excited. Maybe they can can tell us more about who did this. The Pharisees did what they always do. Who healed you? Oh, we know that man is not of God. That Jesus guy is not of God. How do we know? Because he did it on the Sabbath. God would not enable a man to heal somebody against our precious laws of the Sabbath. No way. He's not of God. Notice they asked two or three times, how did the man do it? Oh, well, he, he spit and he made mud. Oh, something like a kneading motion, did he? They want to know. This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others are saying, well, hold on a second. If this man is not of God, he's a sinner, quote-unquote, How can sinners do this kind of thing? How can they heal a man? So they were divided. So the Pharisees said to the man, well, if you're the one whose eyes he opened, you tell us, what do you think? Who is this guy? The guy says, my only conclusion is he's a prophet. He's he's somebody. He is sent of God because he opened my eyes. Well, the Jews didn't believe it. So they called in his parents. Tell us, is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. Who healed him? Don't know. Because there was already a rule, anyone who claimed Jesus was the Christ, out of the synagogue, out of the people of God, disconnected from everything, excommunicated. Does that aggravate you? That the Pharisees would have that kind of rule? Aggravates me. Parents don't want to suffer the consequences of acknowledging that Jesus is the one who healed. Can you relate to the parents at all? Have you ever been in a situation where the right thing to do would have been give testimony to the power and the grace of God, and you say, don't ask me, ask them. I don't want to suffer the consequences, the rejection, the mocking of being the one to say Jesus did this. Probably there are times when we all shy away from proclaiming the grace and the power of Jesus for fear of the consequences. May we grow bolder in that. So he says, let him speak for himself. You ask him, we're not going to tell you. So they call the man in a second time, and they say to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. When they say give glory to God, they don't mean praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we both know the right answer here. That man is a sinner, and the only way for you to give glory to God is to agree with us that that man, Jesus, is a sinner. Speak the truth, and we won't throw you out of the synagogue. They're now committing another fallacy called the ad baculum to the stick. Here are the threats and the warnings we're going to give to force you to agree with us. Agree with us, or else is the point. The man says, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. Here's what I do know I was blind. Now I can see. Draw your own conclusions kind of what he's saying again they ask what did he do to you how did he open your eyes now this man gets it well you've already asked me that are you asking me this time because you really want to become his disciple too great move it's sort of common sense why do you keep pestering me on this and well, then they get mad at that You're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses. This man, we don't even know where he's from. We know anything about him, which is not true. They had already said they knew where he was from. He's from the carpenter and all that. And this guy says, well, that's amazing that you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. You're telling me this guy out of nowhere, you can't trace his lineage back, and he had the power to open my eyes? People throughout history, God occasionally has used them to to give sight to blind men, but who has ever told the story of a man being born blind and a guy being able to heal that? Never the man says. And you don't know where he's from? You don't know who he is? You don't know what he's about? So they really get mad now. You were a born a sinner. See how they're attaching it to the blindness? You were born entirely of your sins, and you're teaching us, and they send him out. He's now excommunicated. He's no longer welcome there. So Jesus comes, Catches him later and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy says, who is he? I want to. I love Jesus' words. You have both seen him and he is the one talking to you. Among the first things this man is able to see is Jesus himself. You've seen him, and he, the Son of Man, is talking to you. And this guy does the only right and proper thing. He proclaims, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The Greek word there means very specifically, he bowed down on the ground in honor of the Son of Man. This man has received his physical sight, and he's received spiritual sight, and he believes in Jesus And now Jesus says some pretty hard words. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world. For judgment I came into this world. So that those who do not see my face, I'm sorry, those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. When you think of why Jesus came to this earth, my guess is this is not the first thing that comes to your mind. Why did Jesus come to the world? He came to seek and save the lost. He came to bear witness to the truth. He came to bring salvation. That's what we're told in John chapter 3. Remember, after Jesus has the interchange with Nicodemus? John tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then he goes on to say, the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save it. Well, in that context, Jesus has just said, I will be lifted up like Moses and I will draw all men to me. And there it's in contrast to Nicodemus and just the Jewish people. Jesus is saying, I've come to save the world. I'm not here to destroy the world. Don't think that God is going to destroy all those wicked Gentiles and just save the Jews. No, no, I've come for everybody, every nation, tribe, tongue, and and language. But here the context is different. And Jesus says, this is the reason I've come into the world, to bring judgment. We must not be afraid to acknowledge this and to tell people this. Jesus himself said it. The context is this. There are some people who believe they can see. The world is full of people who think they can see. Specifically, they can see Jesus and what is okay with him and what's not okay with Him. I mean, how many people in our culture today will say things like, I know God, I know Jesus, and I know that Jesus would never judge a person for their sexual orientation? I know that Jesus would never tell a woman, you can't do this with your body. Not my Jesus. I know Jesus never would say a man is the head of his wife. Jesus would never do this or this. Or this, I know Jesus, I know God, and that's not who God is. My Jesus isn't like that. We've all encountered folks who have that opinion. Those people Jesus put in the category of those who say they see, but actually they're blind. They're blind to the truth because we don't get to decide what's okay with Jesus. We don't get to decide what he allows. He's the king, he's the Lord, he's the sovereign one. Conversely, he says, there are those who cannot see and I have come to give them sight. I've come to open their eyes. These are people who acknowledge I can't see. I don't know everything. I don't know the truth. I'm a blind man. I need someone else to give me sight. Do you remember the Beatitudes? The Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus there is describing what it's like to live in his kingdom? The very first one, the first blessing is, blessed are those who are what? You guys don't know the Beatitudes? Oh, I'm a failure. No, that's not the first one. What's the first one? Blessed are the... Poor in spirit, thank you. Oh, everybody goes back to Sunday school next week. Everybody go back to Troy's class. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means I'm not, I I feel a beggar. I don't know, I don't deserve anything good from God. If you don't show grace and mercy to me, Lord, I have no hope. Remember the story Jesus told between the Pharisee who was there at the temple offering a sacrifice. and says, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like him. I fast and I pray and I tithe and I keep the law and I would never do the things that guy would do. Look at me. Isn't it so wonderful, Lord, that I am one of yours? That's basically his attitude. And then there's this publican, the sinner over here, and he won't even lift his eyes to the altar. He says, "Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't deserve anything from you." Jesus said, "That man went away justified, not the self-righteous Pharisee." To be poor in spirit is to come and say, "I don't have it all. I don't understand everything. I'm I'm just nothing but a big ball of need. Please help me. I'm a sinner." Please forgive me. And Jesus says, that man is blessed. That man will inherit the kingdom. Jesus is saying the same thing here. I've come for judgment. And who will escape God's wrath at judgment? The one who says, I am blind. But you can give me sight. You can enable me to see. It's the contrast between the arrogant and the self-righteous and those who proclaim the ability to determine what is true and not and those who come humbly saying, I need help, Lord. Forgive me. Well, the Pharisees hear this, of course, and they respond the way you would expect. Are you saying we are blind to Jesus? Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. He doesn't mean they'd be sinless entirely. He just means if you truly could not see what I was doing, then you wouldn't be guilty of being wrong about what I'm doing. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Instead of coming humbly and being wowed by the works of Jesus and giving glory and bowing down alongside this other guy saying, Jesus, you are the king, you are the Messiah, these guys say we see everything and you're not of God, Jesus. This man's a sinner, get him out of here. Jesus says, you've proven you are blind to what God is doing right here in front of you. So for us, what do we do with this? If you are here this morning and your view of Jesus has been, nope, don't believe him, Don't acknowledge him. Don't worship him. Jesus says you're blind. And you need to call out to him and ask him and beg him to give you eyes to see. And he will do it. If you see, if you have humbled yourself before him, he's opened your eyes to see the truth. Our response is the same as this blind man. We bow the knee to the Lord Jesus every day and say, You are my King. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. Thank you for showing me grace and kindness and giving me eyes to see. You you see what's going on here, right? This whole thing is a physical story, physical eyesight, but it's all steeped in spiritual meaning. Every one of us is born into this world blind because of sin. Every one of us, the scripture says. But for those of us who are Christians, Christ has given us spiritual eyes to see. And we thank him and we worship him. And secondly... We need to give testimony like this man. We need to go around to the world and say, I was blind, but now I see. I can't answer every question you have, and you want to ask me, do bad things happen to good people, and if so, why? I can't always explain that. I can't draw a clear line from this to this in God's big plan, but this I know. I was spiritually blind. I was dark to the things of God. I was rebellious, but in his grace, now I see. That's our testimony. May we be people who proclaim that and who knows how the Lord will use that to bring more people to himself and give them eyes to see.